four of the Airways Podcast. My name is Rohan Anu, and I'm joined by my friends Vinay Laskara and Helen Diamisa. And I'm recording to you while the Cowboys are playing the Eagles. The Cowboys are up. Not that I should care that much, but uh, just wanted to start off on that non-aviation note. How are you both doing? Oh, we're good. I'm fine. Just had a really nice weekend at Miami Art Week. Went to Art Basel. But most importantly, we had a, a nice um, feature on Delta. Uh, they sponsored, I think, six Miami-based artists. Took them to the boneyards, and they use aircraft parts to make their artwork. So there was an opening on Saturday night, so it was fun. It was interesting to see aircraft parts being upcycled like that. Definitely. And Vinay, what about you? I'm good. I'm still in a bit of a fugue state after um, seeing Texas make the college football playoff for the first time uh, in my i guess it's my lifetime quote unquote but like in the last 10 years since we've had a college football playoff so i'm pretty much still on cloud nine and nothing can bring me down nice absolutely so i guess we'll dive into our couple topics for today so again keeping in the theme of network planning last week we broke the news of the alaska airlines hawaiian airlines merger slash acquisition whatever you want to call it for more details on that, you can read pretty much any news source or you can listen to our previous episode. And with the information that's come out over the last week, we thought we would revisit the topic and be able to maybe do a deep dive in some elements, especially related to network and network strategy, but also be able to kind of talk about the news bits that have come out since then in the week that has transpired. Uh, and so from that point of view, be able to provide more perspective on the logic behind this. So I guess I'll start off by saying that we centered on long-haul aircraft, especially the 787s, the 12 787-9s. That Hawaiian is expected to start receiving, and I I think it's pretty soon, within the next couple months. And so one of the topics that we wanted to discuss was why we think that Alaska was not only going for some of these 787 aircraft, but also against the fact that Hawaiian Airlines has had uh, success in long-haul trans-Pacific markets that go mostly to North America. But over the last 10 to 15 years, they've actually started and have not successfully been able to sustain long-haul international presence in countries like China and Taiwan and the Philippines. So for them, the network strategy of 787s going out of Honolulu to other parts of of the uh, Pacific Rim, that might not be uh, where Alaska takes those 787s. In fact, Alaska quite astutely said, hey, we're going to base these out of Seattle. So we're going to talk about that for a little bit. Then we will also go over Southwest Airlines, its impact in the inter-island network, and perhaps even some of the mainland to Hawaiian Islands uh, network impacts since they came in 2019. We're also going to talk about Virgin America, some of the routes that Alaska took over for Virgin, namely out of San Francisco and LAX that have no longer uh, been part of the network for several years. We'll talk a little bit about some of the co-chairs that existed with Alaska pre-One World, and then we'll talk about scrutinies over slots. And I think another element that might be weird that I might start off with as well is Delta announced Seattle to Taipei in the last week. Do you think that that might have also been a a reactionary move to this news where Delta all of a sudden is going to go back to trying to beef up at Seattle Hub, even though we know it's not a highly performing trans-Pacific hub for them? Sounds like a plan. So um, maybe the place I would I would I would throw out um, as as a starting point is is talking about Hawaiian Airlines' long haul evolution. So 
the interesting thing, if you look at a list of terminated destinations, um, that Hawaiian long haul destinations that Hawaiian has terminated, um, you've got Brisbane in Australia, you've got Beijing in China, um, you've got Guam, which is a really interesting one just because United has been so successful on that route, albeit with a hub in Guam, of course. Um, you've got Sapporo in Japan, um, Manila um, in uh, Manila in um, the Philippines, obviously, Taipei in Taiwan. Those are the terminated destinations, the sort of terminated long haul destinations for. Um, for Hawaiian Airlines. And then um, they also at one point had service from Honolulu to Orlando. That's a long haul flight, though not a um, international or intercontinental flight. Um, and so it's worth calling that one out as well. And did they fly to uh, a couple more destinations in Australia, like Auckland and Sydney? And uh, I feel like one of those might either be going seasonal or... So they still have service to Auckland and Sydney. I don't know if any of them are going seasonal, but mm-hmm. if I look at schedules for January, at least Auckland is on the schedule. Sydney is on the set schedule along with Seoul, Tokyo, um, Osaka, Fukuoka, uh, Tahiti, Pago Pago. Um, and then obviously a, a host of U.S. destinations, the long haul ones being Austin, Boston, um, JFK. New York, JFK. Yeah. You could count like Phoenix in there, I, I guess, theoretically. But yeah. I think the, the, the point I would make is that like, if you look at those markets, right, um, I, the sense I get is that a, a lot of what has happened is Hawaii's recovery in long haul markets was later than that of the rest of the U.S. industry because Hawaiian was much more reliant on Asian and Australian point of sale. Right. So you look at, you know, United, for example, right, or Delta or American, um, Transatlantic and then Transpacific, their origin sort of um, the, the origin of the majority of their demand, the majority of the people that are actually flying on those planes is U.S. side origin traffic, meaning it's people from the U.S., travelers from the U.S., whether they're leisure or they are business. Hawaiian is actually in a very different spot, particularly with its flying to Asia, in that a lot of the demand was from the Asian side, right? So, you know, Japan obviously has historically been a huge source of inbound tourists to Honolulu, and Hawaiian Airlines did a really good business flying that traffic. China, pre-pandemic, had grown as a source of, of travelers for, um, you know, to Hawaii and to Honolulu. So that's why the Beijing route existed. Australia was also, um, and can, you know, has recovered a little bit more, but Australia was also a huge source of, um, uh, you know, inbound demand to Honolulu. And, and that's really who Hawaiian served, right? There's not a ton of outbound travel from Honolulu as a market to, um, to, to the South Pacific or to Asia, at least, at least volumetrically, right? Like you're not going to fill an A330 or a 787 just with that Honolulu origin traffic. Right. So it's like um, uh, market maturity and weak results. Yeah, but 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 I think what I'm calling out is that like essentially these are mat- these are mature markets, but they're Asian point of sale or Australian point of sale, and those two markets had a slower recovery of international travel demand right. than the U.S. did. Right. So the carriers that had U.S. demand centric long haul networks were able to recover long haul a lot faster. And now you're starting to see that turn a little bit. And Hawaiian's financials, by the way, are getting a little bit better. But I think 
part of what you have seen in the kind of post-COVID era is that Hawaiian had the worst long-haul market conditions of any long-haul U.S. carrier. Mm -hmm. So I look at the Honolulu Airport intercontinental uh, mix, right? And then I look against what airlines have flown to non-U.S. markets long-haul over the years. And of course, you've got a lot of presence from your Japanese majors like all Nippon and Jiao. Then you have your Korean majors like Asiana and uh, Korean Air. But I'm surprised that, you know, you don't have more, you know, China Airlines, I think once upon a time had flights there. Um, you know, you don't see any from the Taiwanese carriers. You see Philippines, uh, you see the uh, Australasian Airlines, um, like you have uh, Air New Zealand and you have Qantas. And you have Fiji, <clears throat> but but on that, you know, I, I think that Hawaiian even ten years ago was struggling as it started to spool up routes outside of the mainland U.S. They started to add markets like Tokyo, and then then they went into Seoul and Osaka. This is like 2010, 2011. They went to you know the Fukuoka, the Sapporo's, the Brisbane's, Auckland's, and Sendai's, and Taipei and Beijing, and those were not doing well. Um, it really wanted to go outside of the mainland U.S. just because that is a very high capacity market. Now, it's also one where it's provided a lot of strength to Hawaiian, um, you know, even when times are bad. But Hawaiian exposed itself during those years to like, you know, the weakening yen or some of the uh, depressions in the Australian do uh, dollar. Um, and so then you had Inner Island, right? So Inner Island is where also, Hawaiian had a lot of um, overall market share, basically owned those markets in our island. And very few of the airlines like, you know, Moku Lele, for example, you know, or others were able to really disrupt it. Now, if you look at the Hawaiian um, network that not only Southwest has, but also you even have the U.S. carriers as they merged, like American, Delta, and United being able to add more capacity from new hubs that they gained. Um, so not only flying DC-10s from Chicago to Honolulu, but now like 737s from uh, Orange County to Honolulu or Maui. Um, so, I'll, you know, I'll go to this and I'll just say that now you can fly southwest from Honolulu to Hilo, Kahului, Kona, Vegas, Lahui, Long Beach, LA, Oakland, Phoenix, Sacramento, San Diego, and San Jose. That's a lot of markets from Honolulu. Like a lot. Yeah. Well, the thing the thing that the thing that's worth calling out, right, is that like for Hawaiian Airlines, it's not, you know, American or United it's not a mainland US carrier, right? Within, you know, five hundred miles of Dallas, there's 30 viable markets for American to fly to within a thousand miles of Dallas. There's, you know, let's say like a hundred viable markets for, for American to fly to. Right. Part of that's obviously because Dallas is in the middle of the country. It's a great location, but even something like, I don't know, Newark for United, same math within 500 miles is probably 30 viable destinations within a thousand miles is probably seven. Right. Within 500 miles of Honolulu, there's four, there's Kilo, there's Kahului, there's Liwe, and there's Kona. That's it. That, that's the entirety of the, the within 500 miles um, range. And so for Hawaiian, their like short haul network is really just the inner island stuff. And their medium haul network, the stuff that's reachable with narrow bodies, is really up and down the West Coast. And 
When Southwest entered those markets, particularly the inter-island, where they're taking a beating, but even those sort of close-in West Coast markets, like a San Diego, like a Sacramento, um, like a uh, Long Beach, or certainly LAX, that was attacking Southwest at the, sorry, Hawaiian rather, at the core, at its, at its bread and butter, right? That's, that is where Hawaiian historically has made the most money, is taking passengers from the West Coast of the mainland U.S., to Hawaii, and then obviously secondarily on those inter on the inter island flying, and and Southwest fired a shot across the bow of both of those. And by the way, that was a very profitable arena of expansion for Hawaiian in the early 2010s. Right, I, I'm you know old enough, still plenty young, but old enough to remember when Alaska first entered the Hawaiian market, and now. They are a powerhouse in those markets, right? In you know, from Seattle to the islands, from Anchorage, obviously to the islands, but also from you know San Jose and San Diego and SFO and LAX. And the addition of Virgin America, um, the merger, only strengthened the volume they're able to drive on those routes. So, to me, insofar as like th this merger is happening for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is access to long haul aircraft for Alaska. But reason number two is they went from two competitors on those like West Coast Hawaii sort of routes in that like category of airline, right? Not quite sort of the international global, you know, US three to three competitors in those markets, right? Because Southwest absolutely is going after some of the same customer base. And this merger brings it back down to two. So that's probably a secondary rationale for what's happening here. And I wish I had access to some of the revenue data and revenue performance data of the inner island flights from uh, Southwest Impact, right? And the Trans-Pacific flights to the mainland from Southwest Impact. But also, Vinay, as you mentioned over the years, in the comparison by which once upon a time, Hawaiian is flying DC-10s and 767s and 717s only. And in order to go to the mainline, mainland, they have to fly the DC-10s or the 767s. Then that eventually became the 767s and the Airbus A33200s. Then it became the Airbus A33200s and the Airbus A321neo. And then you had all these other players coming in, like WestJet being able to do that. And you have Air Canada using the Maxes. You have and the same with the Neos from other competing airlines. You never got JetBlue in there. You never got Frontier in there. You never got Spirit in there. You did get Allegiant for a hot minute doing 757s, but that didn't last long. So just to kind of see how the revenue trend uh, performance data can tell us a lot more about how the... Um, how, how these markets literally just kind of, you know, have to, have to follow the wave, so to speak, no pun intended. And that includes Hawaii during the pandemic, and that includes, um, you know, the potentiality of uh, political uh, disturbances, right? You know, when there was all this drama with Guam and North Korea back in the day, um, you know, Hawaii kind of took a beating, right? So I suppose, you know, to, to kind of talk about inner island, I, I really haven't been able to pay much attention to the Southwest effect in Hawaii inner island or even trans pacific uh mainland flying um what are both of your thoughts on just kind of like it coming up on five years in, in the next few months well i can say very quickly they have to adjust their prices i mean for example if i was 
talk about Southwest, right? Uh, adjust prices, I think. I don't know which service is better, which customer service. I'm sure Alaska's is better from what I hear. No, that's a really good point, especially with the connectivity of mobile devices and the lack of power outlets and power points on Southwest. Like they, they've started to retrofit them, but that's an expensive and long retrofit. And people, you know, for a BYO device sort of airline, they expect the technology infrastructure to be better on those longer routes. Plus, it was a differentiation for Southwest, too, in the sense that they started having to serve snack packages. Um, right. You know, they're never going to sell anything that's not alcoholic or premium drinks um, on their flights. And they certainly don't want to make food part of that because people will uproar. But maybe someday Southwest will start selling you know, enhanced meals. Um, but, you know, catering at Southwest Airlines is not, you know, I, I think that snacks and drinks so far roll up to procurement. There's not like an in-flight catering department that, you know, who's in charge of making sure that there's, uh, you know, sandwiches that, that are flown on a flight that long. But at Alaska, that exists, right? Same with WestJet, same with all the other majors. I tend to think that for Southwest specifically, <laughs> even though within the lower 48, Southwest has long since left behind the notion of being a low-cost carrier that with the, the so-called Southwest effect these days, right? Like where, where it'll come in and it'll stimulate fares and it'll, it'll lower fares. Um, in the lower 48, that largely has not been true. I think to and from Hawaii, it has been more true, in, in part because... Um, the major carriers, right, tended to keep fares pretty high um, because, you know, they have they have higher cash fares and they encourage people to burn their miles on, on trips to Hawaii, right? We've talked about the role that Hawaii plays in those networks as a place to dump miles, right, or to, to burn miles, so to speak. Um, and then, obviously, Alaska and Hawaiian both have, you know, not quite legacy carrier cost bases, but they're, they're, they definitely have higher costs than certainly like Southwest or even Spirit or, or, or Frontier. And you don't have a Spirit or a Frontier or an Allegiant flying on some of these routes. You haven't seen the same kind of fair competition that you have on many domestic routes within the U.S. Um, and so I think that even though Southwest is a worse in-flight product, um, and even though there are a lot of constraints that probably matter more on a six-hour overwater flight than they do on Southwest's typical leg, right? Um, for example, you know, the fact that you can't assign seats probably matters more to a family of four when you're flying six hours to Hawaii than it does on a one-hour hop from Long Beach to San Jose, right? A but a, cha a chaotic boarding also, as a family, I would... Of course, yeah. The, the lack of any sort of meals probably matters, especially to families, and there's a lot of families that travel to, to Hawaii. But um, if the last 30 years of airline history have, ta have taught us um, nothing else, they have definitely taught us that people will put up with a lot for a 5% lower fare. Um, and Southwest's entry to the market has lowered fares by a lot more than, than 5%. So, um, you know, money talks. And uh, I think I wrote this, you know, probably a decade ago at this point, right? But every time people complain, hey, the airline industry is getting worse, hey, service is getting worse, it's like, this is what you pay for. You you get what you pay for, right? It, it is the, it's like the oldest truism in the book, right? right? Um, 
And people consistently vote with their wallets for lower base fares above everything else. It doesn't matter if you're going to get slammed with fees. It doesn't matter if you don't have flexibility. It doesn't matter if it's a worse in-flight experience. It doesn't matter to people. They're going to vote for the lowest, like, let's call it headline fare, right? So at the end of the day, you know, uh, I think that that's kind of what you're seeing here, right? Is it, is it Southwest is a worse product, but it doesn't matter because they are... 10% cheaper. And with Southwest, you have the extra layer of the Southwest cult, right? Where, which is, you know, the people who still believe that Southwest is, you know, the cheapest airline. So they don't even, they don't even look at like an, an OTA and or other California. airlines to compare prices. Yeah. And, and, and up and down California, that, that there, there are a lot of Southwest loyalists or, or cultists as we, we would call them. Um, <laughs> frequent flyer program members, there's, there's different words you can use, right? Who, who, who just think that Southwest walks on water. And so now that Southwest is there, there in Hawaii, they think, oh, Southwest must be cheaper. And here we are. <laughs> well, on that note, um, I, I did want to move to the next topic uh, regarding Virgin American routes that Alaska dropped. And, and you might ask, how is this relevant to Hawaii? And I, I think it's relevant because around the time we started booting up this podcast, that's when the... Uh, Alaska Virgin merger was taking place, right? And Virgin was flying to Hawaii. They had added flights from LA and uh, San Francisco to Honolulu and to Palui. And then a lot of those Virgin America Airbus aircraft or the Airby aircraft um, were intended to be used not only on those trans-Pacific routes, but to on transcontinental routes, right? Like from LA to um, you know, Philadelphia or from SF to New York or something like that. But even those trans-Pacific or, or transcontinental markets have shifted a lot over the years. And, um, you know, Alaska has kind of whacked away a lot at San Fran and LA since the merger with Virgin. I mean, some net new routes are still there for sure, but um, it's become a lot more of a Seattle-centric uh, network and now all of a sudden you have Virgin or we have Alaska that's going to be taking on new um, Airbus three two one Neos again. Like, how does that kind of all blend together? I, I think that the challenge, right, is that Virgin America was not a very successful airline for most of its history, and at the time of the merger, it was like borderline profitable, but. It, it had only gotten there because economic conditions were really good because the U.S. airline industry discovered capacity discipline for the first meaningful time since deregulation, kind of in that like 2010 to 2019 period. Um, and, you know, obviously Wall Street enforcing that had, had a lot to do with it. And um, because they had carved out a bit of a niche in San Francisco, which is a city that was rolling in wealth and that had a lot of um, and I actually mean no insult in this term, a lot of like pretentious hipsters, right? Um, it's the kind of airline that I would have flown, to be honest, right? Like it back, you know, was were I not more concerned with global airline um, alliance access, right? But, but you know, in a vacuum, Virgin America was a great in-flight product. It was kitschy. It was cool. It was... Um, <clears throat> it was Virgin. <laughs> It, it was it was gentrification personified. Okay, I'm just kidding. Um, but but in all seriousness, like 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 it had a certain it had a certain unique charm, specifically in S, SF and LA and, and the, the pre-pandemic versions of SF and LA. That was like a unique period, especially as you got into the later 2010s, as the tech boom happened, where Virgin America was successful for those reasons. Yeah, Alaska is not that airline. It's a very successful airline. It's a great airline. It has great management team, great brands, but it's not the same airline. And 
this, some of the things that, that allowed Virgin to carve out a niche, uh, particularly in SFO, but also in LAX, um, went away with the merger. And what Alaska quickly discovered is even before the pandemic, it could not fly the same set of routes that, that Virgin could from San Francisco and from LAX because it could not retain those Virgin passengers. They you know, ended up going in a different direction. Oh, cool. That's an interest. That's interesting. I thought it was just a profitability that smaller planes, smaller routes is not worth it. But no, that's an interesting take. No, it's true. It's true. Like, I, I do remember when there were, um, you know, synergies that they were trying to get from that from that changeover. Mm. So they didn't adapt or like bring. Yeah, like the culture or whatever that hips. No. No, because because really, if you think about it, this is this is the Virgin America that was created by the same affiliates with the Virgin brand. It's fascinating to me that the Virgin brand, as it exists in the airline industry, is not a successful, profitable brand. It's kitschy. It is a brand, but like Virgin yeah. Atlantic is not a profitable airline. Virgin Australia had to go into liquidation. Virgin Nigeria, mm-hmm. we're not even going to go there. Virgin UK. Yeah, when they got into bed with Aer Lingus in that, and certainly not Virgin America. I mean, it's it's like Virgin Atlantic is lucky to be alive, largely thanks to Delta, let's be real, um, and largely thanks to Heathrow. Uh, it's a great airline, great people, great brand. It's also a very small airline overall. People don't realize how small Virgin Atlantic actually is compared to other airlines. And so, well, not only do they not realize how small it is, they also don't realize that it's not really a, like, hub carrier in London anymore. Like, these days, it mostly flies passengers westbound. There's very little eastbound traffic remaining, and it has increasingly become a satellite of Delta. Yeah. Right. Like if you, if you were to look at their, their Heathrow operation, right. They, there's, they obviously got the vacation flying from, from Manchester as well. But if you were to look at their Heathrow flying, right. Just, just at a glance, right. Um, the only destinations that they serve eastbound are, are Delhi, um, Shanghai, Tel Aviv, though, obviously that's suspended. That's going to be, sus- that's, or that is suspended because of, um, uh, uh, the, the ongoing conflict in, in, um, in, in the Middle East, uh, they serve Mumbai, and that's it. That's new. Right? That, that's yeah. it as far as eastbound. And then southbound, they, they go to Johannesburg, uh, Lagos, um, and Cape Town seasonally. But yeah, they've dropped and, from Hong Kong, Sydney, uh, Seoul, Tokyo. Yeah, Tokyo. yeah like, like they, they serve a lot of U.S. destinations, and they do that in part because... That's what makes Delta happiest, right? Um, and, 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 you know, to, to, so the other way of looking at that, at that is that's also what's profitable right now is cozying up to Delta and capitalizing on U.S. demand. Yeah. Uh, but it's really interesting to think about, right? It's, it's a very, very small airline that um, does not have a really wide footprint. And that was always going to be the problem, right? The brand does not equal scale. And in this world of consolidation, that scale is not going to get you any um, advantages if you don't have it. And, and for the reason that's why Virgin Atlantic is now part of SkyTeam. It's part of the transatlantic joint venture with Delta and Air France KLM. I mean, that was a very brilliant move on Delta's part to partner with the premier airline and in its airline. Um, and effectively, it's kind of kept its brand there. Virgin America was brought in and dissolved in. And 
this is where it all kind of connects because with Alaska having done that before and kind of eliminating the Virgin America identity more or less altogether, no one really talks about them. I mean, there are truly, you know, a memory in people's minds. And so with Hawaiian, there's the difference in the fact of, as I mentioned last week, the cultural elements to this. You know, they're going to be under the same operating certificate. They're going to be, you know, one airline. I mean, in, in what way? This sounds super Air India. Like, let's have, you know, the Indian Airlines quote over here. And then let's have okay. the, you know, other call sign over there. No, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. That, 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 that's an insult to the good memory <laughs> of the world's worst completed uh, international domestic merger. Let's not move it to that level. Or like, like no, Air I'm, India, Alitalia, they belong in their own. They're, they're, they're no, their own of special. Course. Like, this is not to insult are, Hawaiian or Alaskan. The point I'm trying to make is, is that, um, you know, where, where are we coming into this where assets, name brands, integration from a workforce perspective, from a route perspective, from an airport access perspective, from a sales and distribution perspective, from mm-hmm. an integrations and IT perspective, these questions are big questions. Yeah. And will it be like IAG? Will it be like Air France KLM? Will it be like, um, you know, like airlines can coexist well and not in like a super toxic way without, you know, fully becoming one. It's kind of just up to the people. That uh, flurry of questions, it's going to be great because we might have someone from Delta talk about the Delta LATAM partnership with us on the podcast, uh, probably January. So that's going to be fun. That should be fun. You, you should never let him listen to any of my Sky Miles jokes. <laughs> Sky Hairs. Sky Hairs. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, so, so that, that's Sky. Sky nice I think we, we landed on <laughs> Sky. Sky Dong, right? Is what we landed on last time? Because the Vietnamese Dong is the oh yeah, the highest USD. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, just double-clicking on on the aircraft. Alaska moved to 737s, so the A320s were... I don't know if that had to do also... I think you were mentioning something like that regarding the, the routes that they axed or they were redundant. Yeah, I think... You know, I wonder if, in some cases, Alaska kind of got pummeled a little bit in that merger with the American-U.S. Airways merger, in the sense that American, Mm. you know, and even JetBlue, for that matter, uh, just kind of made it difficult for an airline like Alaska to go into an L.A. to Philly or an SF to Philly. Uh, Same with DFW, or Dallas Love, rather. I mean, Virgin moved their Dallas... Flights, I think, uh, in 2014, because that's when I remember this. I wrote about it a lot. Um, you know, when those gates from United were available, or something like that. It was a huge brouhaha, as it always is. Virgin came in, started flights to DC, New York, Vegas at one point, Austin, which did horribly, um, and SF in LA. And I, I used those services a lot. Like I had a brief. MVP gold status with Alaska, and it was the best way to get from Dallas to New York or to SF or to LA. And I would get the upgrades on Virgin America, and the product was awesome, right? So, in that vein, you know, you don't see Alaska flying from Dallas to New York LaGuardia or New York uh, or Del- uh, Reagan or um, even markets like San Jose and San Diego. 
they got scrapped. And now Alaska split between Dallas Love, a couple flights a day, and then Dallas Fort Worth, which also plays like Portland and Seattle, right? So, well, one one thing I, I'll call out, right, is there's there's two very interesting things that shifted in the market from when Alaska bought Virgin America to the present day. I think both of them play a very interesting role in what happened to the Virgin America network, right? The first change, obviously, was the introduction of Mint by JetBlue, because Virgin America arguably, right, it obviously didn't have the, you know, the PS, you know, the, 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 the sort of PS or American flagship level product on those routes, right? Um, in, in terms of like flatbeds or anything like that, but it had, you know, arguably something better than domestic first class for most U.S. carriers, right? It was, it was a superior product to domestic first class for U.S. carriers. And if you didn't want to, you know, pay the $2,000 one way that United was going to charge you from JFK to San Francisco or that, you know, American or Delta were going to charge you from JFK to LAX, right? Virgin America was your next choice. But once JetBlue introduced Mint and it introduced Mint pricing at, you know, $5.99 one way or $7.99 one way, that changed the game because Alaska was not going to make a premium, certainly not after it shifted to its product from Virgin America's product, but even with Virgin America's product, it was not going to make a ton of money in the front cabin. And if you're not making money in the front cabin between New York and L.A., and you're not trying to reward frequent flyers, which they don't have a ton of them in, in L.A., um, or even in SFO, frankly, uh, you know, you're, you're ultimately um, losing money. And so that was one of the big things that shifted against them is that JetBlue took their corner. On those on those premium transcons, um, and by the way, you know, arguably did something very similar in the Boston market with the addition of Mint to LAX and SFO. Mm-hmm. And then the other big change that I'll call out is that on some of the longer distance flying from Alaska's hub hubs, but really from SFO and from LAX to you know Philadelphia to um, you know DFW to Atlanta, to take your pick for an eastern half of the U.S. destination, Chicago O'Hare, right? Delta and American in particular shifted heavily to the Airbus A321. And that is, that's like the chasm king. And then the, and now it's the A321 Neo, which is even yeah. more. Like a Charlotte you know, to LA or Charlotte right. to Portland. Exactly. Occasionally Philly to Seattle, you know. Right. And so the really interesting dynamic is that um, until the Max 10 comes out, you have nothing that can match the seat mile mm-hmm. costs of the A321 Neo. And before that, the A321, when the, when the Maxes were, were not really, you know, present, right? The A321 is a low cost machine for full service carriers. And that fundamentally also, I think, changed what they could do from a profitability perspective and from a demand perspective, right? Because now not only are they lower cost, they also have close to 200 seats that these carriers are putting onto these routes instead of the, you know, 150 seats in an A320. And so I think the combination of those two factors um, really changed the dynamics and the profitability of those LA and SF routes. Whereas, you know, in Seattle or even in Portland, uh, frankly, even in somewhere like San, San San Diego or San Jose, there's a little bit more of an Alaska Airlines frequent flyer base that's going to be loyal to Alaska regardless. But in those Virgin, ex-Virgin markets, people went for either a lower cost, in the case of those A321s, or a better product, uh, in, in the case of, of JetBlue Mint. And I think that really shifted against them in the market. Yeah, and the irony being that JetBlue kind of kicked off this whole hornet's nest by going after Virgin that one time anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, as as we're we're shifting, I think we're we're, we're going to move on to, to a couple of non Alaska Hawaiian topics. 
This January, get ready for an exciting issue of Airways Magazine, packed with captivating stories from the world of commercial aviation. Join us as we take you on an exclusive tour of European Air Transport's cargo hub in Leipzig, uncovering the significance of the Airbus A300 for this cargo airline. Celebrate the 40th anniversary of Airbus A320 as we explore the incredible influence of this iconic aircraft on commercial aviation. Discover the inspiring story of Air Tindy, a vital lifeline in the Northwest Territories. We take you on a journey through their remarkable operations. Embark on a thrilling adventure across Queensland as we hop on board a Rex Sab 340, experiencing the beauty of the Australian landscape from the skies. Finally, immerse yourself in the mesmerizing sights of aircraft lining up on final approach at Tokyo's Haneda Airport. We take you on a journey that celebrates the beauty, power and precision of aviation at one of the world's busiest airports. Don't miss out on these incredible stories and more in the upcoming January issue of Airways Magazine. Get your copy now at your nearest Barnes & Nobles or online at airwaysmag.com shop. Um, I do have a couple of pieces of trivia for you both. Um, so the first is I did a quick random fair search for San Jose to Honolulu. Uh, this is for January 10th, which is a Wednesday in January. Um, <clears throat> the cheapest nonstop option is Alaska at $134 one way. Uh, the next cheapest is Hawaiian at $169 one way. We're play a little little mini game here. Price is right rules. Who's going to guess the cheapest one-way fare on a non-stop on Southwest? San one. Jose to Honolulu, mid-January. Alaska's at 139. Hawaiian's at 164. Okay, so Southwest, I imagine, will be at a range of 150 to 180. You, you got to give me a single number. And basically, the, it's price is right rule. So whoever is closest to the number without going over. So basically, uh, add $25. For back fees on top of that. And that's basically what Southwest. All right. So your 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 guess is let's say one ninety four, right? Yeah. One sixty nine for Hawaiian plus twenty five. Okay. What about what about you, Howling? Yeah, I was gonna say one ninety something. One ninety? Yeah. So Rohan wins, but you you both underestimated Southwest and those those uh <coughs> okay. the revenue okay. management team over there. Okay. Two hundred and fifty four one way. Wait. Cheapest one way flight on Southwest. So yeah. are they getting a premium? Or is they're, they're, they're getting they're getting a huge premium, and this is what this is when I when I say the Southwest cult, this is what I mean, right? No, like no, if you just look up fare. the fares, what about what about what about connect fares? Um, so if you were to do connect fares, there there are some pretty it, it cheap connect I, fares, but we also have to say connect with an asterisk, right? Because it's Southwest. Well, we don't do connections or intentional connect points. Whatever, sure. So they this is like do if I want to book. Sorry. Yeah, and they also don't do red eyes, right? So the, the thing, the disadvantage that Southwest has always had has been non-red eye flying, which every other airline can do. Yeah, I think on connects they're pretty even with. Um, if as as I look at this, um, they've got some very cheap connections in Maui. Actually, I, it looks like Maui demand is still <clears throat> struggling after some of the the tragic events there earlier this year. Um, 
but but the the non the nonstop is I think a a reasonable comparison. Obviously, it's anecdotal. Obviously, it's cherry picked, but I thought that was fun. And then the other question I have again, let's do prices right rules. Is how many daily flights do you think um, Virgin Atlantic flies departures? How many daily departures do you think Virgin Atlantic flies from London Heathrow? To everywhere in the world. To everywhere in the world. How many total daily departures do they have? I guess it depends because they had flights. And for context, British Airways does about 310. Okay, so remember, I remember that Virgin during pandemic shifted a lot of the gap, like like Caribbean flying over Heathrow. That's probably because they could have because of the slots, like the waivers. So they they could consolidate the operations. But I think that they weren't able to like stay with that plan because they had to give the slots back. So they're back at gap, right? So some 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 routes are out of Gatwick. I would imagine for Virgin Atlantic, it is twenty-five. St. Mary's or Southwest Airlines dollars. I mean, initially I was going to give it something in the forties, but I I revised my estimates down. Okay, Helen. I was going to say a hundred. Okay, um, is, that, is that your final guess? <laughs> <laughs> okay uh so so rohan was actually really close on this one the, the, much more accurate than your southwest airlines guess. So 29 questions oh man i almost was gonna go with seven. seven yeah 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 no and then this is this is why people are really surprised because they um they That's think of Virgin as a much bigger. Now, if you were to look at it in terms of capacity, right, because they fly wide body jets on longer distance routes, yeah. right. you know, if you if you were to measure by ASMs, it's 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 a good deal larger. But it's still just a really really small also, airline in terms of its footprint. Well, and also their historical fleet has always been massive, right? You talk about seven four seven four hundreds, Airbus A three forty six hundreds. They were going to get the A three eighty at one point. Thankfully, Delta talked them out of that. They are among the first to get the Airbus A350-1000. That's, I mean, big aircraft. So, you know, I'm sure the seven, uh, the you know, the new, the the, tri- the new 777 program, the X has like suddenly gotten a little bit of life breathed into it. It was like sort of like more bound, not more bound, but not doing right. And I, I would imagine that the 777X will fit into Virgin's um, uh, model because, you know, they kind of like to have one of each, one A, one B. So, yeah. Cool. And who's giving who's giving uh, British Airways three thousand slots at Heathrow? I forgot. I, three thousand just slots. That's at Gatwick. At Gatwick. I'm pretty uh, sure, right? Yeah. Sorry, it was a Gatwick. It had no. Yeah. I think it's EasyJet is returning. Yeah, it's EasyJet is returning. Yeah. yeah. Why is okay, three thousand yeah. those slots back? Because they can. I guess EasyJet is. Are they at like Luton and Stansted <laughs> and all those other small ones? I mean, if they yeah. if if they're well, spread out, why should you? Well, well, some some of it is I think uh, that they had built a lot of buffer slots in, um, for because there was a lot of flight disruptions, ATC disruptions, and congestion in the southern Mediterranean. I'm just reading from the Airways Mag story here, um, AirwaysMag.com. Check it out. Um, and uh, but they they didn't need as many um, sort of backup slots to um to fly its operation now that we're in in the winter um they're also reducing um their their gatwick operation easyjet in general um isn't necessarily doing super hot in some of its traditional kind of like uk markets um but apparently it's vacation business is doing pretty well i think i read that in easyjet's more up and down it's it's, you know whiz at the end of the day the people that kill it are Ryanair and Wiz. Like when it comes right. to your ULCCs, especially in the Those are the two 
all stars. Easy Jet has more of a roller coaster. Um, yeah. And yeah, I wonder if part of it is because EasyJet is so UK centric and maybe even like so country centric in some ways, whereas the others are like, you know, truly distributed, which is a, an amazing feat in and of itself because that also includes the Middle East and Africa. Um, so yeah, you know, how do you get from the Middle East and Africa to Alaska Airlines? Well, I guess if you're Alaska, you know, and you can also co-chair with everyone in their uncle, which Alaska used to do. I mean, they co-chaired with Korean, Emirates, Air France KLM, um, you know, uh, British Airways, uh, Qatar now, Japan Airlines, Cathay Pacific, uh, Fiji, Qantas, um, and... Royal Jordanian, S7, well, Sri Lanka. Well, S7, definitely not. They've been booted from one <laughs> world. Yeah, since sanctions happened. That kind of, that, that kind of stops. I think they may need to rub away the Sky Team logos on Aeroflot signage now. Because, like, not happening. Um, so but That's going to change, right? With, with, the, with the Hawaiian? Well, I don't know. Because another topic they were going to discuss was pre and post one world. Well, that's the other thing, is that, like, this is where the scrutinies will happen. Like, these right. scrutinies were ha will happen. The DOJ is going to be looking at these with scrutinies, because the, the DOJ has receipts at the end of the day. They are annoying, yet they're also people that know what they're talking about sometimes, and they have... Uh, I mean, uh, I'm being generous. Uh, it's Christmas. It's Christmas. Uh, I want to uh, be a little generous. All right, I'm not, uh, I don't want to talk any... I... I, I, I Okay, sure. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Don't, 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 don't get me off topic. So, topic. So, like, here's, here's what I'm saying. There are moments in which even the stupid Alaska Virgin merger required slot divestitures at O'Hare, LAX, JFK, and Dallas Love Field. In that same vein, this could happen with this. And there are only a couple of slots um, or questionable whatever, whatevers that would be at Haneda. That's a applicable here. Or potentially at, um, I would say maybe a Seattle or sorry, uh, JFK or SFO. But like, you know, will the DOT say all of a sudden, you know, Alaska is going to have all this, you know, market share power and the Hawaiian Islands to the to the the Commonwealth Islands of the U.S. or the non-affiliated, like you know, like your so, so for for what it, for what it's worth, right? Like, I think that the mo the single most meaningful divestiture divestiture rather that the DOJ could mandate in response to this merger is domestic gates at Seattle Tacoma, right? Because um, Seattle is gate constrained, Delta and Alaska have hoovered up basically all available gates, um, and if you wanted to preserve space for Allegiant, um, for the carcass of Spirit after the JetBlue merger, um, or for you know Breeze or Avella or some of the new entrant carriers, right? Like that's probably the single most impactful set of <laughs> divestitures that um, <clears throat> could be mandated, right? Like like second would be I don't even know that there's any other like real meaningful place where you you would need to see where divestitures would actually be a net positive for competition, right? Because at New York JFK, Alaska is competition, right? They, they're, they're a small carrier. At Newark, they're a small carrier. At LaGuardia, um, I don't even know if they serve LaGuardia, but um, uh, right there, they're a small carrier or a small player in terms of DCA, right? They're a small player. Um, so, so in terms of slot-restricted airports, that's, that's fine. In terms of Tokyo Haneda, um, 
who what new entrant quote unquote is going to um is is going is going American, to like, I'm telling you American wants that JFK Haniga slot they really really want right, it. but they're probably going to get the 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 remedy Portland um Haneda slot is my guess there and then right and then Portland will all of a sudden get a last we'll get Hawaiian 787 well this is this is what I was like, going to say right like, like, all comes like, full circle but again, like Hawaiian, right, it represents the lowest cost full service carrier, quote unquote. But they represent like lower cost competition to Tokyo, the Tokyo Haneda market relative to you know the United ANA behemoth, um, JAL plus ANA or or Delta, right? Like they, they they are the like scrappy upstart in the context of the Haneda market, right? Mm-hmm. With the you know one stop quote unquote connections from the US to whatever, right? Or certainly if they were to start flying from Seattle or, or from Portland, um poor Portland. Um, <laughs> you know, been Portland. going through a lot recently. Um <laughs> so I, I I just like outside of Seattle Gates, which um recognizing that would require the DOJ to <clears throat> what's the right word here? Know something about the airline industry as opposed to merely applying academic textbook theory. Um that's you know twenty five years out of date. That would be a lot to ask, but like that would be that would be the actual divestitures that it could do that would have a meaningful impact on competition. That would be important to protect for competition. Maybe second, I would throw out like you know Southwest is pretty concentrated down at Dallas Love. Alaska is really underutilizing its gate space there. In theory, you could like say, hey, go give that give that to LCCs or to ULCCs. Um, that would be maybe the other meaningful thing it could do to increase competition in response to this merger. Uh, now, again, I, I, th- I think I called last time that I think that they're just going to fight the merger because it's merger and merger equal bad. So, yeah. like, again, yeah. that's the sophisticated, sophisticated level of legal analysis coming out of the Department of Justice these days. How do, you, um, how do you think that the people feel, like, in islands like, you know, Moku, Lele, or, or Molokai, or in Alaska, for example, like, in Adak, or Aleutian Islands, or Barrow, or you know, some of these places, like, how are they feeling? How do you think one so world think, looks at it? So I think that the Alaska yeah, and, and Hawaiian experience because, are very because, different. And I asked this because merger equals bad is also the narrative that the media runs with. And then the media obviously speaks to people that are impacted by this on an everyday basis, and they get spooked, right? So within the course of, you know, just just how people respond, to regulatory changes in the airline industry, in corporate America. Like, I, you also have to wonder, what are the people in baggage handling saying? What are the in-flight teams saying? What are the people that, like, have worked for these airlines their entire lives in remote parts of the world? What are they thinking? So, I mean, I, I think if you're in Alaska, right, in those remote parts of Alaska, you truly have nothing to worry about um, because those are not – places with cheap airfares, right? There's there's some subsidized stuff that, that Alaska does in those communities, you know, whether it's EAS or something similar. But those are expensive places to fly to. And those are, you know, pretty profitable when you adjust for the stage length of those flights, right? Those are not, you know, for, for just as an example, right? If I were to, if I were to look up, um, uh, it was at some, what was the um, Kodiak, Adiak? I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now. But like, just as an example, right? Let's look at like Juno, Juno to Fairbanks, right? Or sorry, Juno to Juno to Anchorage, right? The capital of Alaska to to Anchorage. Um, the total flight distance is 
I'm looking this up on the fly, which makes for great audio. About 500 miles, $200 one way, right? $400 round trip. Right? That, that, that's not a cheap fare. The intra-Alaska flying is, is not cheap. Um, so I don't think they have anything to worry about because that flying will be profitable before and after. If you live on the ultra-small islands like Molokai or Lanai, um, Hawaiian doesn't even serve them anymore, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure Ohana, their uh, weird sub-operation with the ATR-42, uh, I'm pretty sure that died. What about in, go? Yeah, it, it, go. I think that's what, that's what it is. It was like, okay, go. Uh, that was not part of the Hawaiian merger, right? So, like, I don't, oh. I don't think the merger changes anything one way or the other, right? Oh, oops, I got them. I thought they were up on it. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, so if if you look back at Ohana, right, they served Kapalua, which is on the west side of of Maui, um, a smaller airport. They served Lanai and they served Molokai, hmm. um, flying kind of to and from Honolulu and Kahului mostly, um, and uh those routes are no longer served. So I don't think the merger changes anything one way or the other. Kapalua is, you know, it's 30 minutes from, from Kalalui. I don't think it, it makes that much of a difference. Uh, the other two, I think, are more meaningful. Um, but even there, you, you, have, you have Mokulele Airlines. But that, that, that isn't affected by this merger one way or the other, right? Yeah, for sure. And uh, above all, I feel like they're... <laughs> I mean... There's there's so much more that's still gonna come out, right? There's there's more that's gonna like make its way no. Um and, and we've seen this all before. It's just so interesting that right as this news comes out, the ruling on the JetBlue Spirit merger was once again told that they're gonna push it to twenty twenty four. It's almost like everyone's just like, wait, hold up, we need to take another time out here. And so like none of this is going to happen on a time frame that any of these airlines want to do. Things in yeah. this industry work super slow, super slow, and also they feel like they work very quickly. You know, and these these dropping, um, you know, news alerts happen, right? I mean, for example, we wanted to ask ourselves, why do you think that Seattle to Taipei all of a sudden became a uh, a reality? Delta hasn't added a net new dot from Seattle like that. Since the pandemic, yeah, even no, that, that that's a that's a really good call out, right? Like, I think the Alaska merger probably had an impact on that. I think that the um, the shift to um, uh, the sort of shift in aggressiveness from China Southern, sorry, from China Airlines uh, in response to Starlux probably also played a role. China Airlines, Starlux. what did they do? So China Airlines has been like, and I think this was from um, in Lyria Airline backwards on Patreon again. But he ca- he called out that um, that China Airlines had been sort of thinking about adding Seattle in response to Starlux, saying that it planned to fly to Seattle, right? The new Taiwanese sort of carrier. Um, and so you add all that up, and it, it's just Delta. Delta is very protective of its turf, right? You can look no further than it, like through. <laughs> The speed with which it it added Minneapolis Dublin, Dublin after Aer Lingus yeah. said it's gonna go, it's gonna jump into um, Minneapolis. And let me tell you, tell you something about. Let yeah. me tell you, as someone that's worked in network planning before for a major carrier and international, it does not work that way. New routes like that take years, can take up to years of planning. 
So, so the thing I would call out is that it probably, they probably, so Delta is quicker on the draw than most carriers with this. And my guess is, is that like, it had probably been a market that they were considering for a while and they saw a competitor throw it on. Um, and they, you know, they responded in kind, right? But, but, but this goes back to the Northwest Airlines days, right? That Northwest was hyper aggressive about funneling, about like growing capacity um, on routes that had new competitive entrants, right? This is the, um, I think it's the Heartland strategy is what it was called back in the day. So yeah. I, I don't, I, I hear you that it, it takes a long time to launch a route, but my mental model or the read that I have is that um, Delta in particular, but all, all, all the US carriers probably have a wider set of routes that they are, doing some of the legwork for and yeah. you can confirm this because you work there and you know depending on what how market conditions change or what what the the team determines hey this is the best possible yeah. routing yeah yeah, yeah so you grew up in dallas with american airlines trust me and that that summer of three non-stop flights to Reykjavik from dallas Fort worth and, and now they're none you know <laughs> it's like i don't i don't come, i don't know from network planning i come from new cycles and i think to me it's just putting the announcement out just make the announcement and you know uh, maintain the competitive position you know don't let delta customers you know seek other you know what i mean it's like oh but we have and then don't see oh let's see what what happens next well and and eva has been on the seattle to taipei route for decades i remember actually the first time i was ever in seattle airport it was 97 and I wanted to go up to the EVA airline um, counter and grab a tag. I was like, oh, what is this orange, green, white thing? And my parents are like, oh, this is from Taiwan. And I was like, oh, cool. And so they've even been flying like 10 weekly at some point. You know, 777-300ER, probably carries a ton of cargo, 787-10. Um, and so if that all of a sudden happens, right, you know, you're going to suddenly see, it's just kind of what you saw with Delta, on Seattle, Hong Kong, where you have $400 one-way fares in the economy class, you know, going to Taipei. Philippine Airlines didn't come back to uh, Seattle um, to serve Manila because, you know, people are going to fly from Seattle to Manila on Qatar, Turkish, Emirates. They're going to fly in those kind of products um, if the price is right. Yeah, Delta One. Delta One. (laughs) Literally Delta One, D-O-N. Um, and there's um, more. There's more. There's more tourism and business out of Taipei as well. I mean, it's a growing region for sure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good market, and I, yeah. I, I just, I just think that this, this reeks of competitive response yeah. from Delta, right? Because like. There are larger markets, especially um, you know, adjusted for the volume of competition that this route is about to have, right? Like, you know, C- Seattle to, um, to to China is arguably a, a larger volumetric market, mainland China. Um, they haven't been able to make Seattle and Hong Kong work, work and this is a very similar length. Mm-hmm. So um, well, they haven't made Seattle and secondary Japan work either, right? So I guess my question is like, what? How is United just always able to make it work, right? Because like, you know, the thing is, is that it, the magical power of SFO, well, right? And also LA. I mean, like they're like bringing in these flights, you know, and it's like once upon a time you wouldn't have expected it to be like this, um, but it has be, been able to stay that way. Like, like they're really banking on Trans-Pacific being the next transatlantic. 
right? In terms of just like the success over the last couple of years of transatlantic revenge travel for the airlines, um, for trans, they think with China opening up, that's how it's going to be. Now, until the Chinese carriers come back in and flood the markets with cheap seats, maybe so. Right. Until, you know, the frequent flyers and the people that have all those existing business relationships between, you know, SFO and Shanghai and, and you know, whatever that allows it to fly to daily. Same with the Seoul, same with the Taipei, same with the Hong Kong. Those are what's, you know, Seattle doesn't have any of that. Seattle does not have any of that. And that's crazy to me because I'm just like, what narrative is Delta spinning here? They dismantled Tokyo. They got rid of a lot of the Asian routes that have been there since Northwest days. And then Seattle's just been this like piddly little like, yes, no, maybe so, I don't know, kind of a vibe over the last 10 years. So it's just like, it's just showing how San Francisco just is a slam dunk. Well, here's the thing, right? Like, like uh, in the same way that for transatlantic flying, right, you have like New York JFK, for, for for any destination, if you if you were to look at at the like size of the demand, right? Um, New York, you have New York JFK. Then you've got a couple of orders of magnitude. Then you've got Boston and DC. Um, then you know maybe Chicago kind of in there. And then you go a couple of orders of magnitude down more um, to, to until you get to like the rest of the U.S. Right? Like the New York JFK or the New York City rather, in, inclusive of Newark. Um, to Europe market is like something like a hundred times larger or, mm-hmm. or, or, or 80 times larger than the like Austin or even like the, you know, 40 times larger than the Houston transatlantic trans- Atlantic market. Right. You have something very similar on the East, on the West coast, right? LAX and SFO are in a class of their own. And the d- difference between LAX and SFO is that SFO, the U S side is dominated by United. They dominate the domestic market, which means that they can fill more connections, flow more connections profitably into international long haul um, flying. It's already funneled in, right? Yeah. In LAX, um, you've got a much more fragmented U.S. domestic side, which means there's no single dominant hub carrier, which means that instead of the U.S. carrier having a a U.S. carrier having a big transatlantic hub, you instead have a potpourri of smaller routes where each carrier is strong and then a ton of capacity from the Asian side. But LAX and SFO are orders of magnitude larger than Seattle, which in turn, by the way, is maybe on par with like New York in terms of trans-Pacific demand, just to talk, talk about how awesome New York is as like a demand center. And then those two in turn are probably orders of magnitude bigger than anywhere else, except for maybe like Chicago or something, right? So um, the like scale, the relative scale of international demand from U.S. airports is always really interesting to think about because it explains a lot of how, about how airline networks are constructed, um, it, you know, and and explains why it's not so easy to say, hey, what, what is Delta doing? You know, why don't they have more Trans-Pacific from Seattle? The problem is there's not enough origin and destination demand, which means that you're filling the plane with connections. And especially in a world where there's not a ton of business traffic, right? Um, uh, you know, and, and corporate travel, particularly to Asia, has not recovered to anywhere near the same level. That's a really hard proposition. And so that's why things like, you know, Seattle to Osaka, Seattle. And by the way, these things didn't work pre-pandemic. And now post-pandemic, they're even worse off. Okay, just like a layman would say, maybe from a perspective that, you know, New York's New York, it's whatever. Um, LA's like the, the, the capital of entertainment. And San Francisco is technology, right? That's also 
Well, Seattle is the capital, very briefly, of an autonomous state at some point right. in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if that counts. Um, sorry, the autonomous zone. I apologize. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. But I mean, no, Seattle is a great market in its own right. And it, it is a tech hub, right? It is. Um, it, and it's, it's where Amazon is based, it's where Microsoft is based, and it, it, it's a very, very good market. But you can be an excellent trans-Pacific market and still be much, much smaller than SFO and um, Los Angeles, which are, like, SFO and Los Angeles by themselves are bigger than the next, like, 15 or 20 trans-Pacific markets combined in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's just the order of magnitude difference that we're talking about here. They're big, yeah. All right. Uh, just one last thing. Coming back to Alaska, something that Rohan was mentioning, I don't know when, it was uh, earlier, it was, um, like, how do you, how does Alaska manage all these co-chairs and with all these airlines and IT integration? I mean, that's got to, that has, that has to be an issue, uh, well, not an issue, but something that I think... I think Alaska has done a really good job of scaling itself and kind of has actually done the Southwest way of doing things, maybe in a little bit less of a, like, you know, kind of, um, you know, fun at work and more of a, like, we're a serious company kind of thing. Um, and, and, and they've stuck to that model pretty well. And, and within that model, I think that they've had, uh, you know, Processes, technology, you know, integrations run by smart people, you know, taking advantage of the talent pool in the Pacific Northwest really well. And, and you know, all the other communities they serve. Um, so that, that's good, right? They, you know, not to say that's not the case at other industries in other parts of the country. Um, but, you know, considering what Seattle's undergone lately, um, you know, in terms of a transformation and all the uh, people that have come in, you know, it, it, it also kind of another big part about this is that I think that we have had to also look at talent pools and virtual work and disbursement of individuals over, you know, the course of time and even now, and like how are airlines going to be able to um, kind of manage their administrative and, and back office functions in a virtualized kind of way, rather than have them all collate to an expensive headquarters where cost of living is really high, right? You want to bring all the spirit people from Miramar, Florida to Japanese headquarters in, you know, Brooklyn, New York, that's going to be killer, right? So that's another topic of conversation altogether. I just think, you know, Helen, your question is very valid, probably a good topic for another day because we're, uh, <laughs> we're uh, you know, now on, on, on the hour mark, but this was a fun one. Um, even without uh, Serum data, we were able to kind of make it work. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, do we have any closing remarks, either Halloween or Urbine? I, I would just call out that um, I think that the fact that the, the Alaska tech stack has been so good at handling this sort of morass of code shares um, does sort of bode well for their ability to at least te- on the technical side handle the split brand single AOC operation. Like that suggests that there is some expertise there that will be useful. And I think again, with my sort of highly unscientific but industry practitioner's view, right? Um, you know, 
from a the UX side at least, right? Alaska's tech to me works better than pretty much everyone's except for United, right? United is still probably the gold standard within the US airline industry, arguably the global airline industry. But Alaska gets pretty close, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's certainly no American Airlines um, or or even even Delta, which has you know b- both of those for carriers, for example, have more challenges with their tech, whereas Alaska's pretty much always works reasonably well. And so um, I think that they're in, in I think they're they're reasonably well positioned to handle this. Um, the business side of some of these code shares is is very interesting to think about, though, um, just because. The American Airlines co-chair certainly, I think, goes away once this merger happens. Um, and that has been a partnership that has gained a lot of ground and become more important to Alaska in the last several years. So it'll be, it'll be, it's worth seeing what happens there. And then with some of the international co-chairs, right, um, you know, a lot of those touch Seattle in some form or fashion. And when Alaska is flying nonstop, let's say they added, you know, Seattle to Tokyo nonstop, what does that do to the Japan Airlines co-chair? Right, unless they get added to the joint venture, now, now that's a competitor. You got to be thinking about, right? So, most definitely, You're right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you guys. It's always uh, a joy to hear you. You both pull the thread of commercial aviation and the industry, and weave new new perspectives that we might not get somewhere else. So. It's always great to hear that. Thank you so much, and thank you very much. Don't forget for... jokes about Skydong. Oh, yeah. Sorry, anyway. Those, those, those also. Yes, <laughs> and we gotta do more of the, those trivia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need to bring yeah. back the trivia. We, you know, Chris Long thankfully like fun. reinjected some life into it when he asked all those questions. And I'm not gonna lie, we actually did better answering them than Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney. <laughs> that's wild to me there's no way that yeah. that, like, I, I don't think I've listened to that episode yet it's, but there's well, I'm pretty sure that, I'm not surprised I, I mean you have a former airline CEO that's on the board of like Six Flags in America and then you have one of the most prolific Wall Street Journal writers in the industry but I mean who knows? Yeah, but we're, we're so much more arrogant okay. we are in, yeah, I exactly. definitely don't hold a candle up to either of those two people they're incredible <laughs> incredible people so anyway, um, uh, you know how retirees are. They don't want to talk about their old jobs. Oh my gosh! I need. I, to get I wasn't sure where you were going with that. You could have really gotten <laughs> us into trouble there. So I'm glad that that's where you landed. Um, <laughs> okay. On that note, thank you everyone for listening to the latest episode of the Airways Podcast. As always, you can find us on Spotify um, or Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to Substack, um, Substack and yeah. sign up Subscribe. as a premium member. We have not fans. been. Why do you just? Uh, why do you describe everything as OnlyFans? This is a complete it's sidebar. One umbrella. <laughs> it's just one umbrella. Patreon, you know, uh, TikTok. Uh, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. I don't, I don't think. I don't think Substack is a porn site in the same way that OnlyFans is. You know what though? What I'm thinking about is to instead of because. The conversations are so interesting and to me and hopefully to our listeners that it would just be nice to just not have premium content, which we haven't uh, posted recently. Yeah. And just if you want to help us out, uh, that would be another way to to yeah to go about with the sub stack. Yeah, we've decided to not put as much behind the paywall to let you all behind the scenes a little bit. But in return, you know, if you do enjoy the podcast, if you do want to support us, go go to the Substack. Um, the link will be in the show notes. 
uh, sign up for a monthly or an annual, even better, an annual membership. Um, and that'll help us continue to invest in the podcast, um, potentially do some on location stuff. I'm a subscriber, so I can, you know, kind of pay myself (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) Yes, Um, for sure. Well, we also, we're going to have some cool guests, uh, coming up also in 2024. We're going to have Jay Shabbat from, um, airline reporter, former airline weekly, I think. Airline weekly, right? Airline airline weekly, of course. And then, um, but Jay is also like one of those people that has done like a gajillion different things, including like living in Hong Kong. I I can't wait to meet him. Never met him in person. He wrote basically our our favorite airline books. So. Well, yeah, and on also yeah. just incredibly smart. Seems like he's super kind. I hope to get uh, Seth Kaplan on here someday. I would love to get just some friends of mine, um, you know, to get on board here who've worked in the industry. So if you're interested in being on this, if you have any sort of cool story you want to share something that is you know worthy of listening you know to our global subscriber base please feel free to let us know send us a message uh, and we'll be happy to work with you to entertain the idea yes please subscribe and comment on uh ariesmagazine.substack.com yep. so thank you all Have thanks everyone until next time <laughs>